0: Welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. This event was the summer finale and includes some of the season's favorite storytellers as well as a few newcomers. It was recorded on August 25th, 2014 at Payomet Performing Arts Center in Truro and hosted by Joe Richman. The theme for the evening is Bloody Mess.
1: I'm sure a lot of you, whether you're coming up here tonight or whether you just kind of imagined telling a story here tonight, you've kind of played that thing where you're going back through your life and imagining what might be a story, what might be a story there. And it kind of fires off some weird electricity in different parts of your brain. I, I'm finding it's like these story neurons. And it's made me think about what stories are for. Uh, 25 years ago, I, I moved, first moved to New York City. And at that time, it seemed like there were stories on every street corner. Um, at, at that time also in New York, they had this thing that they called homelessness, which um, apparently they still have, but you don't see it in the same way anymore. And back then, especially in my neighborhood in the East Village, um, there were these you know you saw the stories, you saw sad stories and hopeless stories and kind of uncomfortable stories. You also saw these characters. And in my neighborhood there was um, there was plant man who every day had a different, piece of foliage strapped to his back and kind of leaning over. And there was Curtis who went around in a shopping cart and made these with like, you know, car parts and garbage and wire and all this stuff. And he made these incredible objects out of that. He actually got to be kind of well known. There was was Victor who sat on the same bench on 2nd Avenue and 10th Street every single day. And I actually ended up interviewing him a couple times because he spoke beautifully about being schizophrenic. And as he would talk, he would demonstrate it by, he had two packs of cigarettes, he had menthol lights, Newport menthols and marble lights, and he would alternate all day, chain smoking all day, going back and forth one or the other. And then the guy I knew the best was the guy who stayed out right outside my, the door of my building, uh, Kareem, and he was an amazing panhandler, and as far as I can tell, his secret was that he never asked for money. He had these lines where he would say, um, his, his main line was, Pardon me. And people would sort of stop and say, Do you have any gray poupon? <laughs> and then he would, um, sometimes he, you know, when that got old, he would say, Excuse me, sir. Are those bugle boy jeans? And so he had these lines, and uh, he, he did well. But um, So those are the guys in my neighborhood. But um, I would also, going, going to work, when I went to the NPR bureau up in Midtown, I would sort of bike up First Avenue. And I don't know if you, you know, some of you know New York, but on First Avenue around 39th Street, on the on the um, the west side, there's this big building with these beautiful arches, and in the arches is this uh, you know this kind of protected area, and at that time, this is the early '90s, there were maybe about 30 or more homeless people who slept there, and they you know they had everything there, they had their bedding and their stuff, and even on one end was what I what I thought of as their living room. I mean, it really was it was like a living room. It was a couch and a rug, and um, in my memory those, a TV. I don't think that that was. Probably true, but I, you know, it, was, it, it was like a leave it to Beaver living room. And I would bike there, but it, you know, it's like there's a lot of guys there and it felt kind of edgy and um, it wasn't the same thing as those other guys until one day I was biking up there and my chain caught and my bike, the chain just kind of stopped and I lost control of my bike and I hit the curb. I ended up going through that archway and I crashed into the, into the living room. <laughs> and it was a bloody mess. Um, and it was morning, so I woke most of them up, and it was, you know, which was awkward, the whole thing, and, but they gathered around, they kind of picked me up, and they brushed me off, and, um, one of the guys brought my bike over, which at that time, in the crash, had, um, the handlebars and the wheel had turned 90 degrees, so they were facing different directions, and he brought it over, and he kind of nodded to me and said, there's your problem. (laughs) So... I went on my way and, you know, over the course of, uh, you know, after that, I would bike through there and I, I wouldn't say I stopped and chatted with them often. I mean, well, I mean, not once. I didn't, I never stopped and chatted with them, but I, you know, I thought differently about them. And it was less than a year when um, I was biking up there and they were gone, all gone, all their stuff gone, cleaned out. And there was a chain link fence pasted over this and what's interesting is like this is a really beautiful these beautiful kind of ornate kind of you know structure in these archways completely covered by a chain link fence that fence 20 years later is still there and you know if you it, it, we're all familiar with like the concrete blocks and the fences and you know the sort of whether we're keeping out homeless or terrorists or whatever it is this sort of architecture of fear but that chain link fence is still there but after that it was um it was just a, another year or two later where all those guys disappeared plant man was gone Curtis died. He actually ended up having pieces. This is the uh, the the kind of uh, outsider artist guy who ended up having getting pieces in galleries and got an obit in the New York Times. Victor one day wasn't on his bench, and Kareem started coming less and less to um, right outside my door to the building I was in, and uh, and one day he just stopped coming. And the interesting thing is that these guys, to me, I mean, they they weren't replaced by other characters like that. You know, I don't know if it was because you know, homelessness policy or gentrifying neighborhoods. But I think a lot of it was just, you know, I sort of um, wonder how much was me. You know, the idea that you come to a place and you're younger and you kind of have these open eyes and this curiosity and how much as you get older, you just kind of like, you get more boring and you start, stop paying attention and listening in quite the same way. So it made me think about how many of those characters are still around but they're just invisible, you know, to me, to all of us. Which gets me to the point of the story, which I'm using the word point um, generously, I hope. Um, Stories are like a magic trick, you know? They don't make things vanish, they make things appear. They like color in the lines and they make, they turn two dimensions into three dimensions. And so you may have thought tonight that you were at a storytelling, some sort of storytelling slam thing. This is actually kind of a magic show. And if you look around right now, there are 10 people in this audience who are gonna come up here tonight, they may be sitting right next to you right now, and you may not know them at all, or maybe you think you know them, but they're gonna come up here and in just five minutes, um, they are no longer gonna be that stranger that just happens to be sitting next to you, or maybe that that husband that just happens (laughs) to be sitting next to you. Um, And that's what's gonna happen tonight, and are you ready?
0: Okay. Our first storyteller tonight is a Mosquito favorite, Jerry Riley.
2: So I know the topic tonight is supposed to be bloody mess, and unfortunately my story has no blood, but uh, it does involve uh, total and utter destruction, so I think uh, that might work. Uh, now, I've always been the kind of person who, uh, if I buy something expensive, you know, a car or a, a camper or a boat or a trailer or something like that, I, I, n- I never buy them new. I always buy used stuff. And generally, that's, you know, it's a good idea. It works. You get a lot of value. But when you couple that with this other personality trait, it, it doesn't work so well, which is I always keep things until they, they, they unravel. And you have an old car, you have whatever. You end up in the side of the road at 2 in the morning. It, it becomes a problem. Um, so a couple of years ago, I was very pleased with myself when we had this boat, we had bought it used, it's a little sailboat, it was about, we had had it for about 10 years. It was falling apart, but it was still floating. And I said to my wife, you know, we really should get rid of this before it becomes a problem. Um, which was, I thought this first time I've ever done this, I, I think I'm growing up, I'm maturing, you know? <laughs> so uh, at the end of the summer, we uh, last week in the summer, we we sailed the boat to the harbor, we pulled it up, we put it on the trailer. And a little sad moment, the end of our boat, but you know, we get rid of it before it's a problem. We drove uh, about two blocks, smoke started pouring out from the back of the trailer. We pulled over and the trailer came with the boat, but its expiration date was a little bit sooner than the, the boat. The axle had just rotted away. The wheels had gone like this and it turned into this whole big fiasco like it always did and, and that was the end of the boat. Uh, and then the following summer, the first week of the summer, I was coming, we were we were getting ready to come down, and uh, I took the little pop-up trailer thing, you towed behind the, the car, we loaded it up, and I set off. My wife and daughter were going to come down a couple hours later. I got on, on 128, driving along, I go about five miles, and suddenly the thing's got to the side, it's making a noise, and I pull over, and the spring on the camper had had snapped. And uh, it's the first day of the vacation, I dump this thing, and in, in, pull off the road, and I dump it there, I unload a bunch of stuff and I head to the Cape with just my car. And I'm in a foul mood. It's the first day of vacation. Uh, uh, the camper's gone. I don't know what we're going to do. We're going to have to, uh, you know, uh, hire somebody to tow trucks. And, and this is not a good start for vacation. So I drive all the way down and in this kind of foul mood, I cross the line into Wellfleet. I go about a mile and I see on the side of the road, on, a, on you know, just you know, tacked up to a, uh, a telephone pole, a paper plate. And it's handwritten. It says sailboats for sale. So I, I pull in, and uh, and there's this guy Eric. He's got his whole front yard. He's got like six sailboats. They're all old, which is good for me. And they, uh, and all different kinds and sizes and shapes. So I look around. And I see this little boat. It's perfect. That's exactly what I love. A little catamaran, 14 foot, and it's cheap. And so I say, I give him a deposit. And I say I'll be back tomorrow. My wife comes down, you know, she'll check it out, and then we'll buy it. So my wife comes down and, uh, and my daughter, and, and we go the next day, and, uh, and uh, she looks at it, and she says, yeah, you want that? Sure, let's go. She says, but if you're going to get a boat, I want a boat. And I said, what? And she goes, oh, come here. So she brings me around, and there's this boat that I hadn't seen the day before, and this is true. It was a styrofoam boat, totally, it was a sailboat made completely of styrofoam, except for the rudder and the, and the, and the mast, and they wanted like $40 for it, and I said, great, you got a boat. Um, I, I, I subsequently found out these were, uh, back 30, 40 years ago, they were little coupons with cigarette packs, and you, if you saved them up, you could get prizes. And if you, if you saved up enough to get lung cancer, this would be the, the grand prize, and you could spend your last gasping days out at sea in a styrofoam sailboat. So, you know, um, so anyway, we take it home, we put it at the campsite, and uh, we get the other boat in the water and this thing's sitting there. and A couple of weeks later, these friends come to visit and we're gonna go out to Lieutenant Island for the day. And uh, we're hopping in the car and I said, wait a minute, let's take the styrofoam boat. So we, my wife says, I-, I think it's a little too windy today. You know, why don't we leave it here? And I said, oh, I- 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 I, no, it'd be fine. And I just take the boat and I put it on <laughs> and there's a little ring in the front, a little metal ring and I tie it to the front bumper. And uh, I take a rope and tie the rudder to the back bumper. And off we go, we drive out to the island and uh, and uh, we get out there, and the wind's howling and blowing. And I say, well, come on, Mar, you gotta this is you know, the maiden voyage. And she says, no, I told you, it's too windy. I'm, I'm not going in it. And I said, well, can we take it out? And I don't think she was too happy about that, but she said, yeah, all right. So we go out. The two of us hop into it. We pull the sail. The boat moves about three feet. The nose dives and goes right underwater. We fall out, <laughs> and we're roaring laughing. So my friend says, well, you try it by yourself. And the thing's only like six feet long. So I, I hop in it. I pull the sail and it takes off like a rocket, it flies down the beach. And I'm thinking, well this is great, we can just throw this anywhere, put it on the car, take it anywhere, rip down the beach, I turn around, I rip back, I jump off, I tell my friend, you gotta try this. And he gets in it, he, foom, he flies down the beach, foom, he flies back, and all of a sudden, he's out there flailing, like something's happened, the sail's flapping, and you know, there's something wrong. So I I swim out to him, and I was like, what's going on? He said, the rudder just ripped right off this. (laughs) Now, you know, it's kind of hard to believe, because this was like a quality construction. It turned out the rudder, the, the rudder was a wooden rudder uh, with, that was attached to styro- with, with wood screws into the styrofoam. <laughs> uh, so it ripped up. So now it's like the brand new boat. My wife hasn't even got her first ride in it. We've already broken it, so we're bringing it in. T- don't worry, we can fix this, it's not a problem, and, but it's out of commission for the rest of the day. So we spent another hour, hour and a half on the beach, and uh, we're getting ready to leave. I take the boat to put it on the roof. And my wife says, You know, we should leave that here. Uh, it's too windy. Let's just leave it and pick it up tomorrow. And I say, All right, uh, it'll be fine. And I, I take the boat, I put it up, and I take the ring and I tie it to the front bumper. And I go to tie the back, and there's nothing to tie it to because the rudder's gone. So, uh, no problem. I get some rope and I put it through the door and, you know, over the boat. And, I, and my wife says, I don't think that. And so, it's fine, you know. <laughs> so we get in the boat, in the car. We drive off, and my friend Tom's in the car behind us, and we're coming off Lieutenant Island. And for those of you who know know it, there's a big, long causeway to the bridge, and on either side, it's wide open marshes and water. So when we hit this causeway, the wind is howling, and. so we drive like partway through the causeway. All of a sudden, the boat starts making this like boom, it's banging on the roof. My daughter, who's little at the time, she starts crying. And we go, no, it's fine. And all of a sudden, my wife's like, it's, it's getting loose and the rope's coming out. And so grab it. And so she's got her hand up here. I'm grabbing here and I'm trying to steer. And we're driving down and the boat's going like this. And my, my daughter's screaming and crying. And it's going hard and hard. All of a sudden, the boat shoots up. We both let go. We both lose the thing. It goes, I don't know how high in the air and then slams down, BOOM! And the car just like shatters. and my my daughter's screaming. And we come to a stop and we get out and the boat is gone. It's, It's a beautiful sunny day and the sky is full of microscopic pieces. The only thing left is this little metal ring tied to a rope. The boat disintegrated in a split second, it's just gone. And we can see the biggest pieces are about this big And the marsh, there's just thousands of pieces blowing across the marsh. So today, you know, if you go to the Mass Audubon, which is right across that marsh, and you go into the woods there along the water, and you look carefully, you'll find little pieces of our styrofoam boat. (laughs) Am I good?
0: We now welcome back to the stage, Kevin Gallagher.
3: So a few years ago, I came down to Provincetown on vacation and it was a day not that different than today, absolutely magnificent. So at the end of the day, I decided to go on a bike ride through the dunes, uh, end up at Beach Forest. And I'm prone to biking a little fast, but I consider myself a pretty good biker, so I don't worry about it too much. But on a particular bend on the bike path, This guy whizzes by me really fast. And that's not uncommon if you ride a bike, people do pass you. Um, But he had the most amazing butt (laughs) trapped inside a pair of black Lycra shorts. And I was just a little bit mesmerized by them. I was like, wow, wow. But it only took a second to be mesmerized to lose control of my own bike and get in a really bad accident. So fortunately, the hottie and Lycra came back to see how I was, so I got to see the front of him as well as the back of him, uh, which was just as good. And, um, and so he said, he said, are you okay? And so I was pretty, I was pretty banged up, and my arm was back here. I still had one, but it was back here. And I said, well, what's going on with my arm because I can't move it? And he goes, uh, it looks pretty bad. And I'm like, well, pretty bad, like how bad? And he goes, yeah, well, you should see a doctor. And I said, well, I'm staying about two miles from here. Will I be able to get back to where I'm staying? And he goes, oh yeah, yeah, you'll be fine, but you really need to see a doctor. So I said, Okay. So off he goes. And so uh, I decide I don't want to be riding my bike in the dunes anymore, because I'm bloody and the dunes have sand in them. So I thought I'm going to walk my bike up to the highway. So I get up uh, to the highway. But now I have to tell you, uh, my bike now looks different than it did when I first met it. Uh, The tire was going straight. But the steering wheel was this way, which I guess is somewhat common, I'm learning tonight. Um, and so it was a little challenging biking. So I get on the bike and I'm pedal, 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 pedal. And the time of day, it's sort of Saturday about 5 30. So all the pretty boys in Boston have, you know, showered and shaved and they're coming to P Town to get their drink and dance on for the night. And so they're driving by me with like looks of horror on their face, like, you know, and I'm just sort of like, okay, I d- I'm not looking that good, but I hopefully will dress up better later. And, and actually one Jeep came by and there was a gay couple in the front and a lesbian couple in the back. And they said, are you all right? Like, do you need a ride somewhere? And I said, I'm fine. I'm fine. And they said, no, why don't we give you a ride? And I said, well, I'm really kind of filthy and you guys are all like clean and you look good. And actually one of the guys said to the other guy, I don't want him in the Jeep. He's uh, <laughs> like, he's a mess. He's a mess. So I said, it's OK. I said, but my partner is running somewhere ahead. He's got a blue bandana and yellow sneakers. And so if you could find him, tell him that I've had a bike accident and to get the car and come get me. So off they go. You know, so pedal, 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 pedal. So the next vehicle that comes up is a park ranger. And so he rolls down the passenger window, and he said, good afternoon, sir, how are you? And I'm like, good. And, I'm like, and he's like, "You know, is everything OK? Yeah. And so he said, uh, I'd like you to pull over. And I said, I'm fine, thank you. And he said, I'd really, I would would prefer you to pull over. And I said, you know, this isn't about you today. This is about me. (laughs) And I'm really close to home, and so I just want to get home. So he said, pull over now. So I pull over, and I get off my bike, at which point I realize that there's a branch attached to the back of my Lycra top. Sort of looks like a Charlie Brown Christmas tree without the ornament. So I pulled that off. I thought, well, that's probably some of the horror face of the Boston boys. And so uh, he calls for EMT, and the rescue squad comes. And this very sturdy lesbian gets out. She's very efficient. She's got her uh, walkie-talkie attached to her collar. And uh, she comes up to me, and she looks, and you know, because of course, I still can't see it. And so she looks at it, and she's like, uh, I need an ambulance here. We got structure. And I said, I said, what is structure? And she said, sir, your bone's sticking out of your elbow. So I'm like, oh, oh, all right. And she said, and we don't transport. And I'm like, OK, so she calls the ambulance. The ambulance shows up about the same time as my partner shows up. So they're loading me in the ambulance to go to Hyannis. And uh, the park ranger goes up to my partner, Michael, and says, you know, I just have to tell you, your partner is very brave. And my partner said, some would call it brave. Some would call it stupid. He has a cell phone with him. Why doesn't he call for help? Which is a good point, so it's a very good point. I just didn't actually think this was one of those things that you could call 911 for. So uh, if you've never taken an ambulance to the hospital, I highly recommend it. Um, It's like a limo. Like you don't have to wait with all the miserable people in the ER, they wheel you right in, you lay in there and you pass everybody and you get right into the low curtained room. And so I had my doctor and my nurse and they're sort of checking me out and mumbling it to themselves. And, um, and so then uh, the first thing they were going to do was a lavage. Now that sounds as good as massage, um, <laughs> but it's really the opposite. So they take a coarse brush in soapy water and scrub the wound to get out the pine pitch, the pine needles, and the sand. So that was a really fun part. And then they're trying to sew it up, and there's not a lot of skin left. And so the doctor said, um, so when I finish stitching this up, there's going to be a little bit of skin that's hanging off. Um, he's like, is that all right? You know. And I said, well, I've, I've, never, I've never wanted to be an elbow model, but I don't want an ugly elbow, like, I just don't want like a piece of skin hanging off. So my partner pipes up and he said, well, when I sew, and that happens, I cut it off. <laughs> and so the doctor said, well, I could do that. And I said, where did you go to school? And he said, Harvard. And I said, well, perhaps you should tell them at Harvard that they need a sewing class <laughs> if you're going to go into medicine. So I ended up leaving Hyannis in somewhat okay, better shape. I was wrapped in gauze. And, uh, and then every day for the next week, I had to go to the Outer Cape Clinic up in P-Town to have my dressings changed. So the next day, I go to Outer Cape, and uh, the reception, of course, is a drag queen, which is like, you know, sort of like, where else can you go where the receptionist is all dolled up at 8, 7.30 in the morning? And my doctor could not have been any gayer than me. And, uh, and so he's dressed, changing the dressings, and he said... Um, he said, what did they give you for pain medication? And I said, oh, I didn't ask for any, and I don't actually like taking pills, so I don't really want anything. And so he takes out the script, and he writes it, and he tears it off, and he said, this is for 20 Percocet, and I want you to fill it, and I want you to give it to his, your partner, because you must be a piece of work to live with. <laughs> so, I'm just saying, if you ever find yourself very attracted to some part of someone's body wrapped tightly in lycra, beware, because it can turn out to be a bloody mess. Thank you.
0: Next on the mic, we have Betsy Hewlett. Uh, All of my
4: stories are car stories. And this is a story about how I got my first car. I didn't learn how to drive at the age when most people do in my teens, because my father, who was, well, he was very tall. He was six, six and a half. And uh, the length from the seat to the pedal was too long for my legs. I was, uh, my sister was five, eight, and she learned. But I was the smallest person in my class and when there were lines, I was second or third. So it was considered, and in fact it was probably so, that my legs were too short uh, to reach the pedals in the car. It was a Chrysler, I think, at that time. Anyhow, I missed the period when you usually weren't how to drive, and uh, I was then I tried to have my mother teach me much, much later. I must have been in my 30s. And she was very nervous, and she was much more nervous than I was, and it scared me, so we stopped. <laughs> then I, uh, I, had, um, I had a translation of a play on Broadway, and I had my first discretionary income. Isn't that what it's called? I think that's what it's called. So I took driving lessons, and I learned how to drive. I passed the test, but I didn't have a car. Um, now, I I had a boyfriend at the time named Ed, and Ed had a son named William, who was 12, and I was introduced to Ed by Claire, whose boyfriend was named Mesmore. Claire and Mesmore are completely irrelevant to this story, <laughs> but uh, uh, Mesmore satisfies one condition. <laughs> I, I went out one day with Ed and his son to visit my mother, who lived in what we called the country, but it wasn't really the country, it was a house with green around it in a town. And there was a terrace uh, on the back and then a lawn, And we sat on the terrace, and it was a nice day, and we were drinking Bloody Marys. (laughs) (laughs) That takes care of the second requirement. (laughs) Now, at one point, my mother said, I've decided to swap my car to, um, what's the word, Um, trade in my car, um, trade in my old car for a new one. And this was my cue to tell a story myself about a scene in a movie that I had just seen. It was Ingmar Bergman's Autumn Sonata. Does anybody remember that movie? Yeah. yeah. Well, the stars were Liev Ullman and uh, Ingrid Bergman. And Liev Ullman did a lot of weeping in this movie. And Lee Woolman was very good at weeping. I think she probably wept in every movie she ever made with him. And she and her husband were living off somewhere uh, in the country, and they were visited by their mother, who was Ingrid Bergman. And Ingrid Bergman was very selfish and a world-class pianist. (laughs) And the daughter and the son-in-law were sad sacks. And she was a very self-contained, very elegant woman. And she's sitting in bed one evening, night, and she's leaning back against a whole bunch of white fluffy pillows. And she's reading a book. And she puts her book, she, she puts her book down, she takes off her glasses, and she begins to ruminate. And she says, you know, I really should do something for them. I think I'll buy them a new car then she reflects for a moment, and she says, no, I think I'll buy myself a new car and give them my old one. (laughs) The upshot of telling this story was that I had my first new old car, which was my mother's car. And it was a stick shift. And I have driven stick ever since. I hadn't learned, uh, uh, I'd learned automatic. But in about, I don't know, two or three weeks, I learned shift, and that's what I have driven ever since then. And the coda on this is that there have been a number of very serious wrecks around Wellfleet this summer on Route 6. So please drive carefully and don't make another bloody mess.
0: Now on stage is Bob Costa.
5: You know how you uh, reminisce things, you know, like you hear a song, you smell something, a breeze goes by, reminds you of something, you have an image of something. I have this image uh, that always brings me back to this story. And it's uh, my wife, Christine, she's up on a ladder, stretched out as far as she can over a uh, fiberglass roof cleaning it down with a sponge and I'm saying honey what are you doing that for I can take care of that I'm going no come on I'll finish it you go ahead and do what you're doing that's Christine very strong-willed and she'll do whatever she has to do the very next morning after that image um, I called to see how she was doing and she said, oh I'm so glad you called I'm not feeling well I'm very dizzy and my head is hurting me so terribly it's the worst pain I've ever had in my life I said, okay, and I got somebody quickly to take her to the health clinic in town. And I ran over there as fast as I could. When I got there, they said, uh, she's already in being taken care of. And and there's a little window in this clinic. If you stand there and look, you can see people coming down the hall from wherever they've been helped. And as soon as I looked there, I could see Christine coming down, being held up by a doctor, obviously disoriented and in great pain. And uh, they came into the door. And I said, well, what's going on? And they said, well, uh, she's got a migraine headache and she needs to go home and rest and she'll be fine. And Christine is saying to me, honey, this is the worst pain I've ever had in my life and um, I'm very dizzy. And I looked at the doctor and I said, excuse me, I'm very familiar with migraine headaches. This is not a migraine headache. This is something more serious. And the doctor says, don't worry about it, don't overreact. It's just a migraine, take her home, lay it down, she'll be fine in the morning. And I said, okay, and driving home the whole way, I'm trying to decide in my mind, you know, I want to believe what the doctor says. It's just a migraine. But there's another part of my mind that's going, this is not a migraine. I was very uncomfortable. We got home, and we struggled to the door. And I said, come on, honey, let me put you in bed. And she says, no, no, just let me lay down on the couch. And I want to rest, and and, uh, you go to work. I said, look, I'd rather stay with you. She says, no, you have to go. You have to go to work. Go ahead. And I did, but it was very uncomfortable, and I went home quickly afterward to see how she was doing, and she looked the same. I asked how she was, she said, the same, in pain and dizzy. And I called the doctor back and said, things haven't changed, nothing's progressed. And she said, don't worry about it, you know, I'm telling you, she'll be fine in the morning. You know, it's just a migraine, this is just typical. And I said, okay, and I went back to work. Back twice more, called twice more. You know, just over and over again, the same thing, to getting assured and reassured and not being assured. And uh, I was kind of beside myself, and uh, I closed up early, and I went home, and I could look in. As I, as I walked into the door, I could see how fitful she was and uncomfortable, and, and I said, Honey, let me put you into the bed, you know? And she says, I can't get up. I can't get up? I said, Honey, I'm going to take you to the hospital. We We can't wait anymore, you know? And I quickly put on a coat, it was winter, um, it was late at night and it was foggy. And um, I, I put a coat on and I went to open the door and I went out and I opened the car door and I went and I struggled to the door with her. I picked her up and I put her into the car and drove as fast as I possibly could to the hospital. We got to the hospital and I go to the emergency room and I bring Christine in and I said, look, we have someone who's very sick here and she looked and said, what's the symptoms? And I told her, she says, she's got a migraine, you could go sit over there. Over there, was a bunch of people with their heads down between their legs you know, waiting for something to happen in a very dark and fluorescent flickering light. It was very not a nice scene. So I sat Christine down and I went back to the desk to explain, this is not a migraine headache. This is something more serious. And as I'm getting this dismissal from the nurse at the desk or whoever the person was at the desk, I look up in dismay and up on the wall there's a plaque. And on the plaque, it says, operating room, doctor in charge. And I look, and I said, I know that name. Oh, my God, it's John. John is here. I forgot completely that he worked here. So in the middle of the dismissal, I looked down at this woman behind the desk, and I said, excuse me, is John here? He said, yes, but he's taking care of patients, and he really can't be disturbed. I said, no, I know, I know, of course. I don't want to disturb him, but could you just have somebody go and tell him that Bob and Chris are here? Who? I said, Bob and Chris, just please get somebody to tell them that we're here. And someone went and obviously got him, because minutes later a wheelchair comes racing down, and they put Christine in the wheelchair, and we go back up to the operating room, <clears throat> emergency room, and, uh, and there's John. He looks at Christine, and he says, okay, you go wait in there, I'm gonna to check her out. And unbeknownst to me, he had already told the uh, CAT scan crew, who had finished up their shift, to please wait and do one more. As soon as he came into the room, I knew. He was whiter than his coat. He said, Bob, her head is full of blood. And uh, we have to get her out of here and get her to Mass General. And I called for a helicopter, but uh, it's too foggy. They can't do it, so uh, I have a state trooper, and he's going to. Uh, Escort this ambulance up to the hospital. Nothing you can do go home So um, I start going home in the foggy night feeling guilty that I waited too long to get it there and uh, Guilty that I might have done something to cause this and uh, Anyhow, I go home and a few hours. I had to go to work. So I just went right to work and Called the hospital the next morning and they said she had an AVM and ABM is an arteriovenal malformation, and this is a, uh, a type of uh, em, uh, uh, aneurysm. And uh, it's a birth defect. You know, you're born, and your little veins and vessels in your brain are wrapped around each other, and at some point in your life, they have a good chance of bursting. And this was a large burst. And uh, <clears throat> they said they couldn't operate her on her now because there's too much blood there, so you'll have to come back in three months. So, uh, they have to wait for your body to reabsorb all the blood. And uh, so, uh, three months of very anxious waiting, we decided we're going to go forward with this operation because they said, you know, if you don't, the chance of another occurrence is high and the next occurrence could be fatal. And uh, so, anyhow, we went and we did this and it came to have two operations. One operation was a guy who uh, takes all the ends of the burst veins and vessels, of which there were many, and he superglues them. Really, like superglue. And uh, then the next operation is where they actually go in and, and finish it off. So the first one went fine, and the second one, um, I know I'm going over time, I'm sorry. And, and the second one um, was gonna take 12 hours. And uh, the eight hours in, I got a phone call and everything is going fine. There's another team on it. And they're going to go. And, uh, and um, then it was over. And I went in and uh, after Chris was in the uh, recovery room for a while, I see them wheeling her by. And uh, I went over and I said, honey, honey, how you doing? And she went, is it seven yet? Is it seven? I said, what? Is it Seven. There's a thing called aphasia, and when you have like a real serious brain operation, sometimes it happens, and this is one of the results, and they said it would be fine. (sighs) Well, it wasn't. Four years, Christine was lost in this aphasia state because there was so much fluid left in her brain that it was pressing down on, and she couldn't really orient herself. I mean, she would not know how to make a cup of tea, so she would go and maybe put the pot on before the water, or throw the pot away in the garbage after she was finished, so I couldn't let her in the kitchen. And um, anyhow, four years later, we decided we're going to do another operation and put a drain in there. And uh, they did that. And after the operation, I went to visit Christine, and uh, I walked into the room, and she had her back to me, and she was sitting on the bed with one leg hanging down, half of her head shaved, the other half her gorgeous blonde hair hanging down, and she was reading a book, and I said, honey, how are you? She looked at her and said, oh, hi, baby, how are you? She was back. Friday was her birthday. Three weeks ago was the anniversary of this incident. Bloody mess.
0: Our next storyteller is Alyssa.
6: My story actually is the out, out, damn spot story. Um, So I'm a single young woman living in New York City, um, just out of college. I'm living in an apartment the size of a pimple with my best friend. Um, And I've just, you know, I've been going on a lot of dates and it's really hard to meet people in New York City, and I've just sort of like given up. I'm just in this mood where I'm like, ugh, I'm never gonna meet anybody I like, I'm never gonna fall in love, I'm never gonna get married, I'm just, ugh, I just, love is not gonna find me. And um, then my dad's an artist, and he uh, shows at a gallery in Soho, and I get this email from the owner of the gallery, and it's like, hey Alyssa, there's an opening this weekend two French artists, I'd really like you to come, the artist's son is gonna be there, he's your age, he's handsome, he's successful, he's smart, really think you're gonna like him, and you can come out to dinner with us after the show. That's what got me because I can never turn down free dinner, especially when I'm living in this tiny apartment and I can barely afford to pay my rent. So I was like, all right, free dinner, who cares about this guy, whatever, just go get free dinner. So I get dressed up, go to the opening, I'm introduced to this guy, I kind of like him. Like we're having a really good conversation. Um, we go to dinner. Everything's going great. We're hitting it off. We go on three more dates, um, and then he goes, flies back to Paris where he lives. Okay, here. I, and then I'm like, oh, the pessimism sets in. Oh, yeah, I finally meet somebody I like, and now you know, nothing's gonna happen. But you know, very uncommon of men at that early twenties. He was like really persistent. He's like emailing me all the time. Hey, what's what's how was your day? What's going on? Uh, and then we're video chatting a lot. And um, then he invites me to come to Paris and visit him for New Year's. And um, two things you need to know about me: I'm a control freak and I'm very indecisive. So this was like a <laughs> this was a like a major problem. I just didn't know what to do. Um, he lives with his parents. I'd have to go stay with the whole family and, um, you know, I wouldn't be in charge of the itinerary and, um, you know, it's a lot of money to go. What do I do? So I went to my mom and she's like, just go. And I went to my roommate and she said, Alyssa, it's Paris. It's the city of love. How can you pass up this opportunity? Just go. So I purchased my thousand dollar plane ticket. I, and, um, I'm ready to go, but now I have to pack. So I'm, I can't like packing is like my least favorite thing to do on the earth. So like, do the how many shoes do I need? And then does this pants go with this shirt? And then how many pairs of underwear do I need to bring? And like, I have to enlist my mom to come help me and help me pack. And uh, and um, I have to I take the bigger suitcase or the smaller suitcase. And then um, you know a friend of mine, Nicole, um, sort of like this dirty, hippie personality, had just given me, but she has really nice clothes. She she had just given me all these hand-me-downs. And I love, you know, I love free stuff, so this was great. And I I, uh, decided to throw in, um, she had just given them to me. I'd never worn any of this stuff yet, but there was a pair of pajama pants. I decided to throw those in. They looked really comfy. Um, And I was also really happy. I had just had my period. And um, I wouldn't have to pack any of that stuff. So that was like one less thing to think about. Um, I get on the plane. I, I go. Everything's going great. I'm writing these emails home to my friends like, oh, my God, guys, I'm falling in love. Like, this is so great. This is so amazing. Um, and everything's going great. And then, um, you know, this guy's mom asks if, he, if she can do our laundry. So I'm like, all right. So, you know, I give her my laundry. And the next day we're um, called up to the laundry room to get our laundry. And you know he has his pile. I have my pile. And then the next thing I know, uh, she has the pajama pants, Nicole's pajama pants, in her hands, and she rips open the cro- the the top and thrusts the crotch in my face. And she's like, uh look at look at this look at this uh this stain in in the cr- i don't understand i, don't, I try everything I, I wash it i <laughs> i wash it again uh i, uh, la la. I, I just don't know i don't know what to do <gasps> and i'm like mortified i mean this guy i'm falling in love with he's standing right next to me and i and then i notice there's like this really light brown period stain in the pants and i'm like uh what what else could i do and how do i make her understand these are not my pants! I'm, these aren't my pants, my friend. She gave me the pants. This is not my stain. I've never worn, these aren't my pants! And like, she's, she's giving me this look that's just boring into me. Like, I can tell she just doesn't believe me at all. Like, she's just, you know, she's very clean. She wears a lot of white, beautiful white things that have no stains on them. And that was the first time my mother-in-law made my life a bloody mess. <laughs>
0: Now with the mic is Seth Rolbein.
7: So I'd like to take you back 25 years or so to what Cape Cod was like for me. I was living in Orleans and running back and forth to Cambridge a lot. I was up to see my buddy Jeffy in Central Square. And we said, as he would always say, let's go eat lunch. So we did. We had some Thai food in some funky place up on the second floor in some place off Mass Ave and came back home. And I crawled back into bed at night with my ex. And I say that ex just to say, what a stupid, ridiculous way that is to refer to somebody, with Kathy. And so I woke up the next day and it was late winter, early spring. And there was one of those last snowfalls that happens on Cape Cod around that time. And as we often did, we said, let's go for a walk. So we took off and we were going for a walk. And after about five minutes or so, I looked back and I was looking at my footprint in the snow. And my footprint, my right foot was fine and my left foot was like this. And I was walking along like this. And I said to Cap, "Cap, am I walking funny? And she said, yeah, you're walking funny. What's up? <laughs> I said, oh, that Thai food, you know, it's just like, I don't know, I got a little heartburn or whatever it is. And as we walked along, we got back at the end of the day. And she said to me, in not the, as dramatic a way as Bobby would have said it, you're not right. Let's go, you should go get, it, go, go get yourself checked out. So in the morning, I go down the road And this was what Cape Cod was like then. The family physician was Dr. Whitelaw. Now, being a word guy, I expected him to be a cop when I first met him. Thank you, brother, for your story. And he was a rotund doctor, a GP. Remember those? Who lived... In a beautiful old house in one part of Orleans, his little office was on the other side, and when you showed up at his office, you walked in, and there was wooden paneling on the walls, and there was stethoscopes hanging off of chairs, and there were these little vials of things that you had no clue what they were, and he had one of those big scales with the barbell that would move along and tell you how how heavy you were, and each one of his fingers was about as big as two or three of your fingers, and he would just be there, Dr. Whitelaw. And he said, uh, hi, how are you? I said, good, I, something's wrong with me. He said, take off your shoes. I said, all right. And he said, how's Kathy? I said, good. He said, you know, I delivered her. And I said, yeah, I know that. So, so he's, he says, take off your shoes, and would you please bounce on the soles of your feet? Which I did. And he took one of his big old meaty fingers and he stuck it in my belly, right? And I'm sitting there bouncing on my, the balls of my feet. And he says, you have appendicitis. And by the way, do not pass go. You're going down to Hyannis right now. I'm making a phone call, and I'm setting you up with a surgeon. I said, no way, doc. He said, get in the car and go to Hyannis. I get in the car, I go to Hyannis. I'm down there on Camp Street, some such thing. And I walk into this office, and I look up at the shingle on the office, and it's, you know, uh, surgical associates. And there's a couple of people, and sure enough, uh, I'm introduced to this fellow who uh, Doc Whitelaw had sent me to, and his name was Robert (laughs) Scarpatty. I'm a word guy, right? So I'm looking at this, and I'm thinking, hmm, Robert Scarpatty. Well, let's give it a shot. So we sit down, and he looks me over. He says, bounce on your feet. I do my thing again. He sticks his finger in my gut. He says, you have appendicitis. He said, and um, this is what we're going to do. We're going to um, bring you into the hospital. We're going to put you under general anesthesia. We are going to insert a wick into your body. You will allow that wick to remain in your body while it drains the fluid from your body for approximately six days, at which point we will bring you back, put you under general anesthesia again, and we will remove your appendix. And I said, what century is this? You, you want to put a wick in my body and put me out twice to do that, doc? He said, yeah, that is really the appropriate uh, cause. You, you're, you're seriously inflamed, and we're going to have to do that. But before we do that, I'm going to have to give you a little uh, examination just to make sure everything's okay. I need to put on my gloves, excuse me. He, he pulls open the drawer. He reaches into the top uh, drawer to get, get out one of his rubber gloves, and he goes, Ow! It turns out that in the drawer were some of his scalpels, and he had just sliced his finger, Okay. This is the surgeon that's going to put the wick in me, and then he's going to come back. And his name is Bobby Scarpatti. So I'm like, like, I don't think so, Doc. Uh, Excuse me, I got to see a man about a dog, right? I I exit while he's still trying to get the rubber glove on. I go out, of course, long before cell phones. And I find a pay phone, and I call back to my best friend, Tommy, Tommy C. I say, Tommy, I got a little thing going on here. I said, and I don't think this is right. And he said, you're going to Cape Cod Hospital? Are you out of your mind? <laughs> what is wrong with you? I said, well, you know, I said, let me just make, I do know some people in Boston. Let me make a phone call. In the meantime, would you please come here and just get me? Because I don't know if I should be driving or what the deal is. He says, absolutely, no problem. I'm on my way. I make a phone call. Sure enough, I track down somebody at the Beth Israel in Boston who was an old friend of my father's who says to me basically, would you please come up here right away? I say, fine. I get I am waiting for Tom. Tom shows up. He's got one of those Lincoln town cars that's like twice as big as any car that's on the road today. And it's a station wagon. He was a realtor, so he used to be able to like pack signs into the back of the station wagon and drive around and act really cool and try to pick up girls or do whatever he did. But he's got the whole back. He's got the back seat down. And he's got it laid out flat like this big bed. And he's got an igloo cooler with a six-pack of beer. <laughs> and he says to me, man, just getting back. I said, oh, this is awesome, Tom. Thanks a million. I jump in the car, and we leave Hyannis, and we're getting ready to go to Boston, only when we get up on Route 6, we're going in the wrong direction. We're heading back towards Orleans. I said, Tom, we're going in the wrong direction. And he said, oh, one thing I forgot to tell you. Marvin Hagler is fighting tonight. <laughs> now, for those of you who don't know who Marvin Hagler was, and he is, I guess, Marvin Hagler was one of the greatest prize fighters who ever fought from the state of Massachusetts. He and Rocky Marciano were the two who pound for pound, everybody figured, were the best fighters who ever lived in Massachusetts. And they both came from Brockton. The amazing thing about Marvin was he trained in Provincetown. So the middleweight champion of the world, right, is training in Provincetown. And in the evening after work, you could go up there and watch him work out. There was a little, the, the, the Town Inn had an indoor pool which smelled like of chlorine, you know, like unbelievable. But Marvin would come in after being on the road all day. You'd see him, you know, running through the dunes, right? This unbelievable athlete with a, with a towel over his head, you know. And then he'd come in at night and he'd shadow box and it was open. You could go hang out with him, right? And Marvin was the kind of a guy that like when you met him and when you looked at him, He had these incredible shoulders. He had a shaved head long before. That was cool. His face was very broad-featured. His legs were really long. His torso was really short. And when you looked at him, nothing made sense about him physically until you saw him fight, at which point everything made sense. The guy was one of the greatest athletes who ever walked, right? So there he he would be working out in Provincetown, and we sort of knew him. Anyway, he was fighting that night. And they had a closed-circuit television production of it at the Cape Cod Coliseum. The Cape Cod Coliseum used to be in Yarmouth. Uh, it was a place where things happened. I went to see The Clash at the Cape Cod Coliseum, if you can believe that. Um, Vince McMahon, that wacko worldwide wrestling guy, he owned the Cape Cod Coliseum for a while and did wrestling stuff there. Now, Christmas Tree Shop Warehouse. So. Uh, Tommy says, look, I got I got the tickets, man. It's closed circuit. He's fighting Irish Mike Dunn. I mean, we got to (laughs) go. I said, yeah, you're right. We got to go. So he's fighting Irish Mike Dunn. And that was a complete charade, of course. I mean, it was racist to the core. The only reason they were going to they could find anybody to fight Marvin, who was black, is because, you know, this would be the one way to gin up some tickets. And everybody knew it, who had half a brain in their heads. And my secret hope was that Marvin, who I knew a little bit and knew well enough to know, that this was not something he was going to put up with. He was going to be there for the payday, and he was going to get out of there. Sure enough, we show up. I limp into the Coliseum. He's pulling me along. He said, have a beer, have a beer. I, I have a beer. Ding, the, the, the fight starts, right? The, the woman comes by, round one. Marvin, who was ambidextrous, by the way, he fought lefty, and he could fight righty. And you always knew how serious he was, depending on how he came out. He comes out lefty, and he creams this kid, Irish Mike Dunn, right, who was there just for the show. And within the first round, within about 80 seconds, Mike Dunn was on the canvas. And I stood up to say to Tommy, Tommy, get me out of here. And the last thing I saw was Irish Mike Dunn's face on the big screen as I was walking away. And you know what it looked like? A bloody mess (laughs) so I get in the car I lay back in the town car we get up to the Beth Israel Hospital sure enough miracle of miracles the emergency room knew I was coming I get in there the beautiful surgeon Peter Mouse Kenson looks at me and he says let's do antibiotics for three days and then I'll take out that damn thing I did antibiotics for three days he took out my appendix and three days later I was at opening day at Fenway Park Thank you.
0: Please welcome a first-time Mosquito Story Slammer, Jessica Thompson.
8: So, um, one thing I should just uh, start with, I guess, is that I'm a huge klutz. I constantly have bruises all over my legs. I'm, you know, I've got scars everywhere, burn marks. I just can't seem to keep my shit together. So, um, my bloody mess story comes from driving. I, uh drove my first fake vehicle when I was nine years old. It was one of those cruising USA games. And my dad and my sister were standing behind me watching me and they were like, you're terrible at this. You can barely stay in the lane. <laughs> like, I don't ever want to drive with you. And that has stuck in my head ever since then. And every time I get behind the wheel, I think of that. I've never been in a car accident really, but I have been in several motorcycle accidents. So I got my first motorcycle <laughs> when I was 15 for Christmas. My, uh, my dad didn't get me a car, he got me a scooter. It was pretty much like a Vespa and it was red. I named her Bernadette and I had the opportunity to take her out that morning. My dad was like, go around the block, come right back and park it in the garage. I'm serious about this, you don't even have your license. I'm like, okay. I go around the block i say bye to my family like they all watch me drive away i ride down the street it's really fun i got my helmet and everything and i come back and no one's in front of the house so i'm like i'm gonna go back around the block and stop by marlene bernstein's house and show her my brand new bike so i go around the block i pull up to the curb I'm about to get off, and I'm like, I shouldn't put this brand new bike in the street. I should pull it up in her driveway, because that's safer. So I turn around to get it in the driveway, and I give it a little gas, and I don't know shit about throttles. And, of course, I throttle it right into her mom's minivan. <laughs> the bumper's all caved in. I'm riding back, bawling my eyes out. And I get home, and my dad's like, what happened? I'm like, I went to show Marley in my bike, and I hit her mom's car. So I had to go back and tell her, mom, happy Hanukkah, I hit your car. (laughs) She was fine with it. She's like, it's totally fine, you're a mess. Like, just go home. So that was my first trip with Bernadette. That's the name of my bike. Second trip where I had an issue, we moved to Seattle. I didn't have an issue since then. I grew up in Los Angeles. Didn't have a single issue after that. Bernadette was great. She took me to community college every day. Perfect, got around traffic. I moved to Seattle, where it rains a lot, but I figure, hey, you have the gear you can ride. I was coming home from school, college, get off the bus, get on my bike, weather kicks up, it starts hailing. I'm like, I'll be fine, I just need to go down the block again, just down the block, that's it. I start riding, hail starts falling. I get to my light, and I'm like, okay, you just need to go down this hill, you can do this. I turn left, next thing I know, the bike's from under me. She's flying down the street. I'm on the ground in the middle of an intersection. My shoe's gone. I'm like, I don't know what happened. <laughs> what, I just needed to go down the hill. So that was my second little tryst with Bernadette. Third time, I decided to bring a passenger with me. My roommate. Again, going around the block. We're coming back to our apartment. We got to go up a hill. And I hit a little piece of gravel. Bernadette goes down again. Vicky, though, she was on the back. She hopped right off like this. Landed straight on her feet. She's like, I don't know how that happened, but I'm fine. <laughs> Bernadette went down again. I'm starting to think maybe me and Bernadette weren't meant to be together. <laughs> But I don't know. I, I was a, I was in love. Fourth time apparently is a charm. I'm riding again with a friend. It's her first time on a scooter ever. It's two-wheel Tuesday. We hang out every Tuesday and watch motorcycle races. I'm like, let's go get a pack of cigarettes and you can ride for your first time. Go down the street, coming back again, going down a hill. And in Seattle, they have tons of these little roundabouts. We come to the roundabout, and I see this giant truck going through the roundabout. I'm like, it's cool. I'm only going 10 miles an hour. He's going to go through. I start pulling through. He starts backing up. He backs right into me. Thankfully, I had the wherewithal to get a little gas, because if I didn't, he probably would have killed us. But I just... The only memory I have is me and my friend flying through the air like Superman, looking at each other like, oh shit, what's happening? (laughs) We both hit the ground. We're like, pop right up. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. Are you okay? She's like, yeah, but there's a little tear in my jeans. She had a puncture wound in her shin down to the bone. And we had matching bumper marks on our thighs from his bumper. The cops let him go, they let him go home. And they held us for questioning for some odd reason. And uh, that was the end of me and Bernadette. (laughs) She was a bloody fucking mess.
0: Next up, Bridget Moynihan.
9: So I'm a new grandma. And the reason I'm telling you this is you can become a grandma with no bloody mess. No placentas, no spots, nothing. I'm going to tell you a different story. I'm five years old. I'm keeping my eyes tight shut because I don't want my grandma to know that I'm not asleep. Wake up, child. She says to me, I have to open my eyes. And I see her there with her hair, which is usually tidy, all down her shoulders to her waist in her white nightgown. She looks at me and reaches out her knuckly, cold hand and caresses me and puts a little bit of my hair behind my ear and says, you're such a lovely child. Too bad, you're going straight to hell. <laughs> now, this is not a discussion I want to have, so I just keep smiling this tight little smile. If only your mother were to take you to church, then you'd be able to go to the, with the angels, all the lovely angels in heaven. Too bad. Then my mother, sorry, then my grandmother arranges my arms. She says, put your arms together. No, not like that. Don't cross your arms like your mother. That's defiant. No, gently now. One here and one here. That way, when the Holy Ghost comes for you, he'll know you were a good little girl I tell my grandma I'm afraid of ghosts ridiculous we're talking about the Trinity here and she points above my bed and this is the middle of the night she points above my bed, and she says, it's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. They're all three watching over you. This is even worse news. (laughs) It's such a shame your mother baptized you. If she'd left you a heathen now, you could have gone to limbo. (laughs) Now, limbo to me sounded pretty good. I've pictured an island, lush, green, tiki lights, heathens, grass skirts, dancing the limbo. But my mother. So of course, she leaves. No, I'm sorry. The next step of this is the rosary. She says, now say Hail Mary with me, and so I say, Hail Mary, and forgive me, Catholics. I may have it slightly wrong. (laughs) Hail Mary, full of grace. Pray for our sins now and at the hour of our death, bead by bead by bead. Now go back to sleep. (laughs) So I lie there with my arms crossed. smiling, like trying to be, look as good as I can as I go to sleep. I know I really, really do want to go to church. I want to have that veil that my sister Catherine had. She went to catechism. She got to walk down the aisle like a bride. She got to wear a white dress and little white anklet socks with lace around them and patent leather shoes. I want that. But I'm a little bit afraid of catechism. Not sorry, not catechism, confession. Because my grandmother has told me that if you don't go into that tall, dark box with that priest, and if you tell a lie, when you get the wafer, which looks really good to me, when you get that wafer, your tongue turns into a viper. And it splits in two. The next day, I wake up. My grandmother has gone back to Boston after fighting with my mother about the fact that my mother will not take us to church. This is the Crusades. (laughs) And I say, Mommy, Mommy, you have to take us to church. I don't want to go to hell. So my mother says, there's no such thing as hell. There's no such thing as heaven. When you die, you just get buried in the ground. Now, this is a troubling thought also. But I don't want to think about it right now. So instead, night after night, I remember getting up out of bed and going to my mother and sitting on her lap and begging her, when you die, mommy, I want you to bury me with you because I don't want to be left alone. And my mother sang, leaning over. I could smell the Nivea cream in her soft cheek and her beautiful dark hair. And she said to me, it won't be for a long, long time, honey. And by that time, you'll have children of your own and you'll, you won't be alone. And so I would go back to bed. And I'd close my eyes, and it would be dark, and there'd be nothing. So I'd make up little cartoons to go along the bottom of the screen, Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, running along the base of the screen, I guess to keep me feeling like a bloody mess. (laughs) Thank you.
8: Our
0: next storyteller is Andrew.
10: I'm from uh, Dennis originally, but I live in New York now, and uh, I am an entertainment reporter. So I report on celebrities and entertainment news, and um, it brings me all around the country, and it's a very interesting experience for me because I see places that I may not otherwise see. and I was in West Monroe, Louisiana, and I was reporting on Duck Dynasty, which is a show that not, I don't know if people are still watching it, but it was at one point before everything, um, there was a bit of a scandal with Duck Dynasty, I don't, I, don't know, I don't know how many of you keep up with entertainment news, but there was a bit of a scandal with Duck Dynasty and a lot of people were watching it prior to that, and that was when I was there. and. Mon- West Monroe, Louisiana is uh, a place I'd never been. And I was excited to go. And particularly because my best friend Rachel uh, has challenged me to sing um, Paradise by the Dashboard Light by Meatloaf in all 50 states, <laughs> which I'm slowly doing. And I had not yet done Louisiana. So I arrive in Louisiana, and I'm tracking down the Duck Dynasty people, and I'm chatting with them, and I'm living a lifestyle that I'm not accustomed to, coming from the Northeast and uh, living in New York. Um, So there I am, and I, uh, I, 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 I meet this bartender, and her name is Kristen, and she invites me to Sit and drink with her and finish her shift. And the next thing you know, the Duck Dynasty family walks through the door, and I'm thinking to myself, "This is why I'm here." And they're they're in this restaurant. We're all in this restaurant. And Kristen says, I'm, "I've hurt my back. Can you help me out behind the bar?" And so she, so I come around the bar, and I'm there, a journalist, washing the dishes, helping this girl I've never met, and. It's she, helping her clean up. And so I think to myself, well, I can't tell her that I've got this 50-state challenge where I'm going to sing meatloaf at karaoke in every state in the union. And that's a weird. That's weird. I mean, that's a weird thing to tell somebody you've just met. So I, uh, I don't tell her. And she... So we go to a bar, and I go with her friends. And I kind of slip away. And I say, you know what? I'm going to call it a night. It was nice meeting you. Have a great night. And off I go. And I find this place down the street to go sing my song. And I sing Paradise by the Dashboard Light. And I check it off my list. And, And so I'm driving back to the hotel or motel that I don't have yet because I'm kind of a fly by my seat kind of guy and I don't book these things in advance and I'm just, you know, I kind of go as I, as I go and um, I hadn't booked a hotel yet and I'm paying no attention, I'm, like, I'm driving down the street and I'm listening to the radio and I hit a median, the tire pops and it's right in front of the place where I was drinking with that girl Kristen and they heard this, and I pull off, and, the, and I'm in this rental car, and I uh, and she kind the friend, friends come out that I was with earlier the new my new friends in Monroe Louisiana. And uh, and so they come out and they they say to me like. Where, where, what are you doing? What have you done? Where were you going? What you? And so I explained to them, like, ah, oh, I went to this other place, and I this, you know, this meatloaf song, and blah blah blah. So we, dr- so we drink a little bit more, and they say, forget the car, get a cab, go to your hotel. And I said, okay, fine. And so I did that, and I, I get in a taxi cab, and I'm thinking to myself, I'll just go to some place like the Holiday Inn or the. Uh, it, you know, some, something like that, and I, I said, you know what, I don't care where I sleep tonight, why don't we just go at this Motel 6, and mo- nothing against Motel 6, Motel 6 is a great place, I've stayed at Motel 6, um, but you know, it's, it's not the finest accommodation, uh, so I go there after several drinks with my new friends, and the taxi drops me off, and I wake up the next morning, and my office has no idea that this is happening. And I wake up and there's a Cracker Barrel across the parking lot. So I go to Cracker Barrel, I'm sitting there, I'm getting emails saying, what's going on, You know, how, how are things progressing? And I am without a car, by myself, in a Motel 6, eating in a Cracker Barrel. And I've, I've got no car. And so I think to myself, where have I got, what have I got where have I gone wrong in my life right now? I was not you know, it's sort of like this is not where I was expecting my to be. And so I call a cab. And there are two cabs in Monroe, Louisiana. And not two cab companies, two cabs. And the cabs and the cab comes finally after an hour and then those dark moments when I was sitting there reflecting on what the choices I had made. And so the cab pulls up and she leans on the horn to alert me that she's there and she and I come down and she says to me, I get in the car and she says, uh, well, um, I just have to pick up a f- uh, fax as we're driving and I'm thinking to myself, people are faxing? Really? This is the thing? The faxes are coming through? And so we're driving down this dirt road, and it's her and her friend in the front seat, and we're in this like Ford Taurus from the early '90s, and we're rambling along. And I'm thinking to myself, "Work is like work is calling," and I'm and and, and I'm getting stressed out because I have to pretend that I'm not, you know, over in this motel room in West Monroe. And uh, and so she picks up this fax, and she tells me, and I go back and I pick up the car. And she's telling, and it's su- such a southern way. And I love exp- this. This is what I love about America because we're all so different. And I learned something new. And she's she's speaking in her southern accent. She's saying, "I gotta drive up to Arkansas, and I've got, and I'm not, I, I just, I can't, I got these facts, and I don't know where I'm going, and so I gotta go pick up that facts." <laughs> and she has this conversation. And so, anyway, so then finally we find the car, and it was at like you know tip tap dance studio next to the bar. And, uh, and so we get there and I changed the tire myself and I wrecked my knuckles as I'm doing it. I'm cranking the, 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 what, what do you call it? To pull the lug nuts off, uh, tire iron. I'm pull, I'm cranking the tire iron and I wreck my knuckles on the pavement. And for the next going into the winter, because it was, it's dry. I was a bloody mess on my freaking knuckles from that tire change. And uh, I was, it, was a, it was a learning experience. It was certainly a learning experience. Um, anyway, that's my bloody mess story. And uh, thank you. Thank you.
0: And we welcome back Dick Morrill.
11: I'm going to talk fast. It's a long story, but i got to make it short. I was about 19 years old, and I went over to a friend's house to drink because we had a, access to a liquid cabinet. And about 1230 at night, I was very drunk, and I decided to go home. And my father's car was parked in the street, but I lost the key. So I decided I would walk home. Um, and then I realized when I got home after a half hour walk, my father's going to say, where's my car? So I thought, well, the really good thing to do would be to go back and look for the key, because I know it's there. but I didn't want to walk a half hour, so I decided what I'll do is go in and I'll take the keys to his truck and I'll drive the truck back. It seemed like a thing to do to me. I knew I was, by then I was sober. It had been a half an hour. And so I drove back and I parked behind the car on the street and I walked over and I opened the door and there was the key right on the floor. So problem solved. New problem. I should, what am I gonna do? I don't wanna drive the truck home and then walk the half hour. That's what I'm trying to avoid. So, what I do is I decide in my clear thinking way I drive the car one block. I come back and I get the truck and I drive it two blocks. I walk back one block, I drive two blocks, I walk one, I, and I'm thinking, whoa, I'm driving two blocks, but I only have to walk one. I've come across something here new in the universe, some thermonuclear, mm. so I did this, and it seemed like the right thing to do, and I was really happy, I'm thinking, uh, I'm, I've am i got it right to... Uh, Ralph Nader, because I think I've learned how to double my gas mileage, and th- then I thought, really, this is what I really thought, I'll write to General Motors, because it's got to be worth money if you can double your gas mileage, or am I just cutting my time in half? So I finally get past the halfway point, I decide I will just drive the truck the rest of the way. So I drive the truck home, and I let it come down the hill quietly, and I turn the key off, and I, walk, I put the key back on my father's bureau, and I walk back up the hill, and I take a left, and I take a right, and I take a left, and I take another left, and I've taken too many lefts, and I'm walking around. I've walked a half an hour looking for the car. <laughs> now, how many people have, show you, raise a hand, how many people have lost the key to their car at one time in their life? Yes, every hand goes up. How many people have lost their car? <laughs> I don't mean where I parked it in the mall. I mean, I lost the fucking car. <laughs> so, I'm standing there, and all of a sudden, I hear in the distance, I hear music. So, I go back up the block, I walk about two blocks over, and I look down the street, and there's my father's car in the, in the middle of the street with the lights on, and the door open, and the interior lights on, and the music playing, and the engine's running. <laughs> so, so I run down, and I get in the car because I want to drive off real quick because somebody, I'm sure, has called the cops and said, you know, there's a party going on in the street, but there's nobody, nobody there. <laughs> so I took the car home, but I didn't want my father to hear me coming in, so I decided I would shut the ignition off on my way, and i just coast. But I didn't go far enough, and I coasted back down the hill. So I did it again, <laughs> and I went a little faster, and it didn't make it. So around the corner, I got going about 30 And I came screeching around the corner, (laughs) gassed it, rolled up, and parked the car, and I went in and went to bed. I never wrote the letter to General Motors. I never told my father. But it was a couple of years later, and I was at the, my parents and the kids' parents who owned the house were all together. We were having dinner. And the mother said, Dickie, tell that story about the time you had your father's car, and you got drunk, and you got the truck. Thank you.
0: Last but not least, Gordon Peabody.
12: Thank you very much. Uh, Can everyone hear me? Of course, if you can't, how am I going to know? I wanted to just take a quick moment and thank uh, Vanessa and Caitlin for all the good energy they put into the Outer Cape. Thank you. I really believe in creative vision and in the people that aren't afraid of it. Um, well, the story I'm going to tell you tonight could have happened to any of you, except that you weren't there. And uh, <laughs> Basically, I might as well start at the beginning. I think stories have their own voice and they're just looking for a witness. And, um, my sometimes friend Sharky hit Key West like a new deck of cards. Everyone wanted to get their hands on him. Uh, freshly graduated from a prestigious cooking school, uh, newly married. He immediately got a job as a chef in a major restaurant. But, you know, when you purchase something new that's going to be a vehicle for your reputation, look under the hood. If they'd looked under Sharky's hood, they would have seen dogs, uh, the island next to Key West, for those of you that know or don't know, had a dog track. Uh, why people would want to bet money on dogs uh, beyond me, but people did it. And uh, Sharkey did it to excess. Sharky did it for all of us here tonight. And his wife's wondering, where's all the money? The restaurant's wondering, where did he go? His wife's wondering, where's he spending his time? And he didn't have the nerve to tell her because he knew that he was going to hit it big and things would change. The only thing that changed is his wife busted him at the restaurant coming back with empty pockets and no excuses, or excuses that weren't good enough for uh, this woman. And so she started throwing food at him. Now this was not a Denny's restaurant. This was like a restaurant where you could have a weekend vacation for what you spent on a meal. And so the management looked kind of dimly on the fact that food was thrown all over the restaurant. Not the wasted food, but that it not only hit their chef, but it hit other clients there. <laughs> so Sharky was out of a job. Well, you might wonder, well, how did we conceivably intersect? Well, I was mistakenly pursuing uh, my male destiny as stern man on a swordfishing fishing longline uh, fishing vessel. Uh, the Gulf Stream, being the strongest ocean current in that part of the world, was getting squeezed, almost like a zit on date night from all directions. <laughs> out of the Caribbean, and as it went through the Straits of Florida between Key West and Cuba, uh, every great fish in the world was going through it. How big is a big fish? Well, not rowboat size like a bluefish, we're talking pickup truck size. All the big fish in the world use it as kind kind of a corridor for migration, kind of a conveyor belt. That also, unfortunately, included sharks. So we would leave the kind of cheap suite of the olfactory patina of Key West. We'd cross the reef and we'd get out into the deep, sweet uh, smell of the Gulf Stream. And right around sunset, we'd set out about eight miles a line, hundreds and hundreds of big, bleary-eyed squid that had to be put on the hooks and, uh, you know, I threw up every night over the rail and, uh, you know, squid being what they are. and. Um, With due respect to my friend Donnie that loves his squid stew and wonders why I never come over when he hears this He'll understand so to make a long story short. I was a stern man I was a lone man on the totem pole the first mate would walk with a swagger like he had a couple six guns And he had a mysterious long case with a zipper on it So we would sleep on our hammocks at night and then right around Dawn we get up and we would start hauling back. Well swordfish travel with sharks I don't know how many of you are shark aficionados, but uh, the one thing the captain told me, he said, never look at a shark's eyes. Uh, sharks have these yellow, golden eyes, so I'm told. Uh, and they, can, they create this hypnotic trance when you start looking at them. And years later, I stopped going out with an extraordinary woman because she had unfortunate eyes. And, well, how do you tell a beautiful woman she reminds you of a shark? You know, You know, it's like... Find something else, you know, uh, you know, your apartment smells like expensive cheese or something, but... Anyway, to, uh, continue in the direction that I'm dragging you right now, uh, I immediately got a promotion. Because our very first uh, day out there, uh, as we're hauling back a hammerhead shark, now there's a mistake. I don't know how many of you religious people, I don't mean to offend you, a mistake. I stalks out like that, 10 or 11 feet long. Shark shark comes surfing down this terrible uh, uh, swell, and the Gulf Stream slams into our boat, which is balsa wood and fiberglass. And um, I hear cracking, and I'm thinking, well, I'm not going to be home for dinner tonight, you know? (laughs) And at that point, you know, first mate swaggers down below, comes up, unzips this thing. It's a huge road warrior shotgun on a pole. And it's like, whoa, what's he going to do with that? I'd never seen one in my life. My first thought's to run, where are you going to run? We're 20 miles out to sea, you know? And uh, the captain never spoke, even on a good day. And he he's just kind of looking around and kind of, you know, with his eyes, do something. We got this big shark right next to the boat. Sharks are eating the swordfish for another six miles. we got to just make things happen. Well, so the we big guy goes over and he's trying to get the shark, trying to get the shark in the head with this horrible road warrior thing. And, you know, sharks didn't survive for 250 million years by being stupid. They know, number one, when someone's trying to hurt them. Number two, they have tails. So they can move around. So while the shark's moving around, this hero uh, blows a hole in the side of the boat with a shotgun. (laughs) Not one barrel, two barrels. He said, you need two barrels to make sure the shark's dead. Shark wasn't even hurt. We had to cut the line off. Every time you cut the line off a shark, now you gotta buy a new hook and you gotta spend fifteen minutes tying it on with monofilament. So you never wanna cut a line off if you don't have to. And we're hoping to get the shark on board dead and get the hook out of his jaw anyway. Now we're sinking, Well, not gonna have to worry about what to have for dinner tonight, I'm thinking, you know. In fact, considering all the sharks that have been attracted to the attention around the boat, just rub yourself down with salt and pepper and jump in the water, you know? It's like well, you're out there. There's nothing else around but fins and water, and this guy with a shotgun that now is carefully putting it. The captain runs down below like this, and the first mate carefully is zipping his shotgun back up. We're sinking. Yeah, anyone notice that? Water rushing in. So the captain, being a good lateral thinker, even though he's quiet, uh, comes up and he's got the he's got the wetsuit that belonged to the first mate, and he stuffs it in the shotgun holes to stop us from sinking. So now we've got to finish hauling in the last six miles of line, and we limp back in the Key West. So now we're short of first mate, so because he's not getting back on the boat with whatever in God's name he had in the zipper bag. <laughs> so I'm now promoted, I'm almost my first day of work, I'm now first mate, but now we need a third mate. Enter Sharky. <laughs> we're all part of the same dysfunctional so- social circle down there, no offense to my sister Deborah in the audience, but, uh, uh, the truth should never be a stranger at the table. So now Sharkey's the new stern man. sharky would never been on a boat. He'd never seen a fish that wasn't on a platter. And he certainly could do a good job with a fish on a platter. Now he's out in the Gulf Stream, which is always going like this. He'd eaten the cheesecake that the captain and I got as a special treat for after dinner. He'd eaten all the cheesecake. And then when the captain said, did he finish our pa? I said, do you mean pie? And the captain looked at me with squinted eyes, and I realized I'd insulted him, but with a southern accent, which I was just kind of, I thought it was pretty funny. Not funny, the captain never spoke to me again for that trip. So that night is a special thank you to Sharky after he was uh, uh, crude enough not to throw up over the rail, but he was throwing up his right on cake right on the deck, so we have to, have to look at our missing dessert. Um, <laughs> The captain and I gave him a special treat uh, After you set out your eight miles of line you go back and you sit in the middle of it And you watch the gear in case something big gets into it. What's bigger than what we're already catching and um, You have your hammock so the the boat is kind of going like this in the trough and uh usually the hammocks are rigged port and starboard. Well, Sharky's hammock, we rigged fore and aft, so that as the boat went like this, his hammock was going kind of like a whirly gig in a windstorm, we just wanted to make sure he didn't get any sleep, you know, not that anything was left in his stomach at that point, which we could document. So the next morning, we start hauling back. Well, as it turned out, we sharked up real heavy, and uh, what that meant is that We were gonna lose a lot of money, we are gonna lose a lot of hooks, and we are gonna be all day tying new knots in the monofilament for the new hooks. None of that was acceptable. So what we ended up doing was we decided, okay, any shark that's four feet or smaller, we're just gonna pull the hooks out. Sharks are like four or five feet, maybe a little bigger. May have to cut them off, it'll be a decision we'll make at the rail. The captain's running the hauler, the eight miles of line are coming in. Every 30 seconds, 60 seconds, you got another empty hook, shark, swordfish, whatever. A lot of the swordfish were chewed off right to their bills. You know, people uh, in the supermarket, they say, oh, we see you got some swordfish, that's supposed to be dangerous. So I'm going, ha, you think that's the part of swordfish that's dangerous? They're six feet long with a sword, <laughs> you know? So I'm very familiar with what's dangerous with a swordfish, and I don't have a problem eating it. So, um, we're hauling back we're getting a lot of sharks what i didn't realize was that sharky had not only never seen a fish he'd never seen a shark and he was in a little bit of a problem in the back there's no time for people to work out psychotherapy on a fishing boat you know it's 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 it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a it's a guy it's a guy's world you got to step up you got to do your job there's only 3 of us the sharks start coming in. So 15 minutes, we had 15 sharks and on the back deck, and Sharky hasn't moved. And, and the captain is kind of yelling at me with his eyes, refusing to talk to me after the pie slur, so, which was innocent, as you could tell. So finally, I have to leave the rail for a minute, because my job, the captain's running the hauler, checking everything, and I've got to make the decision. Does it go to Sharky? Do we cut it off and waste 15 minutes? and and five bucks or, you know, what's gonna happen? Second day on the job, I'm now first mate. So I walked back to Sharky and I just kind of put my arm, hey bud, come on, let me show you how to do this. You put your knee on the shark's back right in front of his fin, you pull the snout back, you reach in, unhook, get the hook out of it. It was a curved hook, it took a little bit of a wrist move, but a chef can do that, you know, we've all seen that happen, so (laughs) what's the big deal? And then you throw the shark overboard, you know, so At that point, I go back to the rail. The captain's shouting at me with his eyes, get back over here, get back here, why didn't you just talk to me? Uh, The captain's shouting at me with his eyes, so I go back to the rail, we're hauling in, we got a couple good swordfish, we get them down on ice. By now, we'd had 20 sharks in the back deck. So the captain's looking over, he's admonishing me, don't you know how to give instructions on how to take a hook out of a shark? What could be simpler? The only thing we hadn't accounted for was sharky just had never seen a shark and didn't know what to do with him. So finally, we're up to almost 30 sharks on the back deck. So the captain, he couldn't stop the hauler. He had to keep doing the work himself. So he lets me know with his eyes that it's time to get, get over there. Well, you probably always wondered, why do guys' shirts always have a little extra here? That's so one guy can go to another and get his attention and move him in the direction that needs action. So I grabbed Sharky off the back of the bait box, Dragged him down into the sharks, and I showed him what had to be done. You put your knee on it and everything, get the hook out. And I said, "Okay, now you do it." And so he had his knee there and everything, and he was having trouble with the hook. So I put my hand in the shark's jaw to get the hook out. And at that point, Sharky panicked and let go of the shark. Well, all a shark knows how to do is to bite, eat. You know, uh, who knows what kind of signals he was sending to Sharky with his eyes? Maybe he had taken control of him. So now. <laughs> Now my cheap but pleasant-looking, you know, yuppie gloves were ripped up and I was bleeding from my hand. And you know, when you get hurt, especially when you get hurt on a boat in the middle of the Gulf Stream, out in the middle of nowhere, uh, all you want to do is get home for dinner. And I didn't know what was going to happen next, but I knew that this shark was sawing his way into my hand. So, I can't say that I'm proud of it now, but at the time it seemed like the right thing to do. I grabbed the shark, I ripped his jaws open, I got the hook out of it, and for some reason I just picked him up and I just kind of slammed him down on the deck. He was only four feet long, but slammed him down on the deck. And then for some reason, I'm still not sure why I did it, I kind of swung the shark around in a circle, and I caught Sharky right in the solar plexus with it. (laughs) And I kind of knocked him off his feet, and I remember seeing one of the shark's eyeballs go into Sharky's pocket, short pocket. And I'm thinking, geez, what have, I, what have I done here? You know, this is crazy. And, and Sharky is like this. He got up kind of like he would gotten a little electric shock, I threw the shark overboard. The captain by now was screaming at me with his eyes, get over to the rail. So I got back to the rail. Sharky, to his credit, began functioning like he'd just gone through some kind of battlefield shock, and he started working quite normally. And we never talked about it. Sharky still talked to me, even if the captain didn't that much. But I, I heard that when he did his laundry that next week, he found something in his pocket. Thank you.